a week ago, we started in the series in Act Out. We've had several messages, but a week ago we talked about this issue from Acts 4 and 5, situations in which Christians define themselves, as the early apostles did, in which they're given a command, and if they obey that command, the outcome would be they would disobey God. And so one of the, one of the direct correlations we made from those passages was, if someone commands us, some delegated authority on earth, and remember God's the only one with unlimited authority, every other authority is under God, is delegated in a limited sphere, any authority that commands us to disobey God must be disobeyed itself, that we always obey God as the ultimate authority, and when that, there's a conflict, the, the king told me to do something, and I know I'm not supposed to, then I obey God rather than that sub or delegated authority. That's a clear line in the sand for us. And it was Daniel 1 verse 8 that we talked about as the introduction, that Daniel was living in a culture that he knew was at odds with God and God's things. And so knowing that ahead, he prepared himself ahead of time for those times when this was going to happen, when he was going to be commanded to do something and he would have to say, I can't do that because I need to obey God rather than others. From that very clear line, we made a secondary guideline from some other passages, and it was this. Here's another exception when Christians may, and sometimes should or must, disobey an authority. The first, an authority commands me to do something that requires me to disobey God. I can't do it. The second, though, was this. An authority may claim authority broader than they have been given. And we said things like this. If your neighbor Fred tells your family how to live, you know you don't need to. Why? Fred has authority within his own household, but not in yours. Or the federal government can't tell the state government what to do with the state taxes. Because there's a distinct line between authorities. There are given spheres. Someone's operating outside their arena, their delegated area of authority. You don't need to comply. You might choose to comply, but you're under no obligation to. This morning, we're going to look at a third exception to the rule also when we talk about situations that may arise in which we say we needn't comply with an authority, and that's the third guideline we'll look at this morning. Um, I want to give you several reminders too, caveats before I start in so that you're hearing, I hope, what I hope to communicate. First, this is information heavy. So Mark started us off, we're talking about God's glory, and I'm all in. I, I could have just left Mark up here, right? We could have started worship. That was great. But we're trying to do some heavy lifting as far as thinking through things, through some dynamics, through, through some relational issues about authorities that we're, we live under, so that when things potentially arise in the future, we've already prepared ourselves for them. So we live under authority. We aren't advocating a spirit of rebellion, but rather anticipating future challenges to Christians living in a culture increasingly antagonistic to God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to the moral and practical imperatives God gives us. So the culture around us is becoming more and more adversarial to our positions as Christians. With that in mind, what are some of the things we may face that we need to be aware of ahead of time? Otherwise, our starting point when we think about our relationship to the authorities God has placed above us is that God's put them there, and they're a good thing, 
And our starting point is compliance, not rebellion. We're not looking for reasons so that we can get out from obeying authorities. We're preparing ourselves from times when we may need to because the authorities are not acting in the ways they were commissioned to. So when not to comply to, I almost can't stress this too much. So I'll say this on the beginning and I'll say it on the end. If you find yourself in a situation in the future in which you say, you know, there was those guidelines, and this is guideline two or guideline three, we'll talk about this morning, and so I don't need to comply. You got to think through these things hard, and you got to be humble, and you got to pray about what's my best response to this situation I'm in. What's the most humble, God-honoring way in which I can choose not to obey an authority, okay? So we're not engendering a spirit of rebellion because everything a Christian does should be done in humility and obedience to God. So we're always living in submission. So this isn't a call to live out of submission. Ultimately, submission always to God. But again, just as Christians in other parts of the world today, right now today, and historically in the past have, they face situations in which they're making decisions. Do I comply with the antagonistic element this authority over me or is this a situation in which I may choose not to or I must choose not to so that's really what we're trying to set up so I hope you have a study sheet this is a Roman numeral number one God's purpose for ordained authorities guys generally big picture God ordains authorities to protect and preserve life to protect and preserve life if we said there's one easy way to define the mandate, the purpose for authorities God institutes, it's to protect and preserve life. That's why God gives us authorities. Uh, safety, freedom, the ability to thrive or grow. Sometimes God uses authorities to punish or judge people. This is an exception. It's not the norm. You do see it throughout the Old Testament especially Israel's brought into the land of promise. They're meant to wipe out the people that are there. God uses Assyria to wipe out the northern kingdom. God uses Babylon to wipe out the southern kingdom. So God sometimes uses authority structures as his means of judgment, but that's the exception. That's not the norm. The norm is authorities are established to promote life. The things we'll be talking about this morning, I'm, I'm going to limit myself to three spheres of authority government, the church, and families this morning. But what you'll see in every instance is that the role or the purpose or the mandate for authorities is always the protection, the preservation of life. That's what authority is all about on the earth. And you'll see that in spades as we work through this. So here's guideline number three. We may legitimately disobey an authority when that authority is acting contrary to its mandate, even if that activity is within its general sphere of authority. So we may choose appropriately before God to disobey an authority when that authority is acting contrary to its mandate. So contrary to its mandate. Whatever the authority is doing or commissioning or commanding, is in fact acting against the reason that authority exists. The authority is acting against the very purpose for which it's been instituted. So we check off the box, is it an authority? And we say, well, yeah, it is. And is it operating within the sphere God is designating? We check that box and we say, yes, it is. 
The third question is, is it operating in the manner for which God established it in the first place, the protection and the preservation of life? And we'll see this in each of these three categories. Let me distinguish guideline two from guideline three. In guideline two last week, we said it's the, the question is, is the authority acting within its sphere? So every authority under God is delegated and it's designated, it's limited. There's no authority besides God that's unlimited. So it has a sphere in which God set it to, to be the authority. So what is that sphere? That has to do with where the authority is operating. It's sphere of operation. Where is it? Is it exercising authority within the sphere, the designated area God's given it? That's number two. Number three is how the authority, even within its sphere, its given sphere, it's operating within the arena God's designated it, how is it operating? Is it operating in keeping with its mandate? And that's really what this is about. Is it operating in keeping with its mandate? The soldiers knew that Saul is the authority, check that box. They knew he's the king over this nation and everyone in it, check that box. But they knew what he was commanding was not okay. That even though he is the authority and it's his area, his sphere, he doesn't have the right to murder people. So they didn't. So they understood that. And that's what we're talking about here. So guideline three, how an entity is exercising its authority is the authority acting within its mandate, the purpose for its existence. And we'll look at three key areas. The first and the one that's probably more likely than not to affect most of us is government or civil authority. God instituted government. So we'll get to Romans 13 in a minute, but um, all authorities on earth have been instituted by God. And God instituted civil or governmental authority. And that starts in Genesis 9. And put this in perspective. In Genesis 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sin and fall. And so they become the heads of a fallen human race. Genesis 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. You, you, just, you just get out of the chute and you've got murder. Cain's descendant, Lamech, boasts that he murders men who merely injure him. And you get to Genesis 6, and the description of the world is that it's covered in violence. So before God sends the flood... What you have is an earth that's susceptible to violence and murder as a norm. Now, remember, the mandate God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Make the rest of the earth like that garden you knew in the beginning. So here, what's going on? Well, mankind is now operating against God's very mandate because life is not sacred and murder and violence is the norm. So God wipes humanity out in the flood and starts over with Noah and his descendants. That's Genesis 9. In 9.2, God reiterates the mandate from the garden, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then he talks about instead of just the veggies, now you can eat all the animals. The animals are now your food. But he also says that if an animal slays a man, the animal should be killed. And then he says this, this is Genesis 9, 6, and 7. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood should be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Do you see that he's combining 
The death penalty, this is God instituting capital punishment, and this is the institution of human government, of civil government. This is it. And it's in the context of men being fruitful and multiplying. In other words, there's a justice element that if a man murders another person, they've illicitly taken someone else's life away. God says in justice they forfeit their own. But he also knows that if you take the murder, the violent person out of the equation, mankind generally will be able to do what God commissioned them to do, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, and subdue it. So civil government instituted in Genesis 9 why? What's the mandate for civil government? The key mandate for human government from its inception was the preservation and protection of life. This would allow mankind to fulfill God's mandate to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth as God's vassals, his image bearers and representatives. You see the same thing when you get to the law of Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy especially. God institutes not only laws but he institutes the hierarchy or the authorities within the nation to make sure the laws are kept or carried out. The law provided for restitution in cases of theft. The law provided corporal punishment, capital punishment in the law of Moses within Israel. The law of Moses enforced by the authority of priests, kings, prophets, and other community leaders was meant to protect life within Israel to promote life and flourishing. That's why it's there. Skip forward to Romans 13. This is the best-known passage in the Bible on a Christian's responsibility to governmental authority. It's verses 1 through 7. I'm going to highlight only verses 3 through 4. So Paul writes in part about the Christian's responsibility to governmental authority. He says, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. That's ultimately, that's not only punishment, that's, that's execution. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So verse 4 says of government, this is of civil government. He is God's servant for your good. Why does God institute civil government? For your good. For the good, for the benefit of those within or those living within the sphere of that civil government. It's for their good. It, the government should benefit anyone who's living under it. That's the reason it exists. It's an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Just like Genesis 9, the thought is, by punishing wrongdoers, everyone else is free to live and thrive and flourish. So government, again, preserves and protects life and allows people to flourish. That's the thought. So what is the mandate for human government? And so, guys, we're saying this so that we have a criteria by which we know, as those soldiers did under King Saul, by which we know this authority, this person or this government is an authority, they're operating in their sphere, but what they're asking or requiring of us does not fulfill their mandate. What they're asking is actually against the very reason God has put them in existence. So here's some examples. I'm going to give you some examples on government and not so much on the other two. So think of this. This is just some examples of what this might look like. 
police, judicial, and some government forces in Hitler's Germany had authority. They, they are the government authority, and within that authority, they have the right to arrest. They have the right to detain. They have the right to imprison, just like authorities here. They have the right to execute. States here on the states have death penalties. Same thing in Germany, okay? There's the government here. They're operating within their sphere. But when those authorities op operating within the general sphere, the geography of Germany, targeted people for arrest, detention, and execution who hadn't broken the law, hadn't otherwise proven to be harmful to other people. This is primarily Jews, but it was many others as well. They were operating within their sphere of authority, but against their mandate. What is the mandate for civil government? It's to preserve and protect life. They are not operating within their mandate. The Germans required Jews to show up so that they could be taken off to detention camps. Those Jews were under no ethical moral compulsion before God to show up. The command of the Germans was against their mandate. The Christians and the others in Germany who hid Jews and others were under no ethical moral responsibility before God to obey the mandate to turn in their neighbors. Now friends, they knew this. But Christians, when we discuss these things, we're often fuzzy because we know what's right, we know what's wrong, We've got it in our gut, but we don't know why. Well, this is why. Because they were operating against the very purpose for which God instituted them in the first place. Think of the colonial Americans. The colonials during King George III's reign, before the American War of Independence, they didn't question that King George III and the British government had authority over them as in their colonies. They didn't question that. But what they did, and this is especially true if you read the Declaration of Independence, go home and read that this afternoon or at least read the first half, what you see is they understood that we are being abused by the king. We are not being served. Our best interests are not being served. So when you read the Declaration, it goes through this long list of abuses and guys in the colonists had tried time after time after time after time. They're really a model example for responding to mandates made by an authority that needn't be observed. They're a model for it because they were so patient. So they knew what King George is doing is not illegal by British law. We're not represented. He actually doesn't have God's authority to treat us the way we've been treated. There was the Stamp Act. There's other things as well. But this was the thing. They understood what the king is doing is not licit. It's illicit. It's against the very mandates the king lives under, under God. I would say, too, under the COVID lockdown of a couple years ago, though enacted by lawful authorities, many of the mandates the authorities made did not need to be observed with a moral conscience before God for a couple of reasons. One is this, within the law, the legal system in the United States at all, you cannot treat people unequally under the law. And there was unequal treatment, this is the 14th Amendment, unequal treatment of the law across this country, everywhere. Those laws, those mandates were illegal. Their very concept was illegal. But the other thing was this. Think of this as an example. The governor of New York 
And remember, governments exist to protect and preserve life. The governor of New York took people he knew were infected with the virus, and where did he put them? He put them in retirement homes among the most vulnerable people and their health. Was this illicit mandate? No way. By mandate, many, many people died alone and lonely in settings because mandates wouldn't allow anyone to be with them. What this nation suffered under COVID lockdowns was inexcusable. These are crimes against humanity, and it's going nowhere. So you hear about this, and in your gut, you know that is wrong. That should never have happened. But then we say, well, the government said so. And we're thinking we're, we're trying to be good, faithful Christians, but we, we haven't worked through why is the government here. The mandate is to protect and preserve life. Now, no doubt, if you talk to some of the mandating people, the authorities, their argument was we're trying to protect life in making the mandate. Some of that is laughable, right? So if you're the mayor of Washington, D.C., and you tell people that they may not come out in public or they must wear face masks, and then you march in the riot through city with no face masks, you've told everybody, don't listen to what we have to say. So what occurred under COVID throughout the country, these mandates, by and large, not always, but by and large, Christians and others needn't have to respond to them with a clear conscience before God, okay? So, so not only are they in authority, are they within their sphere, but is what they're doing in line with the purpose for their existence? Jesse Johnson writes this in his recent book, City of Man, Kingdom of God. And he, he's talking about the, the need to comply, even if it's a wicked government. He says this, even a wicked government can check evil and promote peace, Romans 13. Even wicked governments have been established by God for that purpose. Remember, Paul wrote that under Nero. Nero was the Caesar during those days. Paul recognizes that every government has been established by God for that purpose. Excuse me, has this ability when he writes, those governments that exist have been instituted by God. Romans 13. In fact, even wicked governments derive their mandate to rule from God's design for government found in Genesis 8 and 9. So when a wicked government makes lawful demands on its citizens, Christians are called to obey. We check off the three boxes. It's an authority in its sphere of designated authority, and it complies with its mandate. We obey. By lawful, he qualifies, I mean commands that promote peace or hinder evil. Governments are mandated under God to protect and preserve life, to provide a peace that allows people to be fruitful and productive. Though drawing a line as to when a government has exceeded its mandate isn't always clear, that such limits exist is. That the government is limited by its mandate is a given. Again on this, the devil is in the details. So if you say this is a principle, we get it. I think it's relatively clear. When you say, what does that look like lived out? That's where the challenges are. We'll talk next week about some of the repercussions or possible repercussions when we choose not to comply with an authority, especially a governmental authority, what might some of the repercussions look like? We'll talk about that next week when we talk about Christian suffering. 
Uh, the next one I want to talk about is ecclesiastical or church authority. Guys, we live in, uh, is it 39 flavors, Baskin-Robbins? We live in the 39 flavors uh, era of the church. So if I don't like the church this Sunday, I go to another church. I pick one flavor this Sunday, I pick another flavor next Sunday. Okay, that's not the world that the church was born in. And that's not what God's called us to anyway. So remember that when the church was instituted, not the nation of Israel, remember we leave behind, we've already talked about that in this series, God's now going outside Israel to bring people to himself through every tribe across the nation. So it's no longer that, but Jesus commissioned the apostles with his authority. Matthew 28, you remember? All authority in heaven and earth is mine, you go. In my name, with my authority, you go and you make disciples. Same things in Acts 1 verse 8, you're going to be my witnesses. So they had, they were given, the apostles, they were given Jesus' authority. And what did they do? Well, among other things, they wrote the New Testament epistles. They wrote most of the New Testament, the apostles, not without exception. And, and are the gospels and the epistles binding on us? Is God's word in the New Testament authoritative for us? Of course it is. Well, where did it come from? Well, the human agency were the apostles and those that followed them. They were speaking and writing and interacting with God's authority, with Christ's authority. The apostle Paul exercised that authority and others as well, <clears throat> excuse me, when they established authorities in local churches. So Acts 14, 23, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 those passages are the key ones that talk about the institution of elders and deacons as the authority figures in every local church. There was authority instituted in the church and in churches. Acts 20, 28, Paul's talking to the elders from the church at Ephesus and he says this, the Holy Spirit made you overseers. The Holy Spirit, God, made you leaders in the local church. It's not just you guys thought this was a good idea. God made you. You're operating under God's aegis with God's authority in the local church. So here, here are the boxes again. Is there authority in the church? Yes, there is. What's the sphere of that authority? Well, it's the life of the church, right? It's doctrine, it's practice. There's a number of things. The church isn't trying to exercise authority to the culture broadly. The church isn't trying to tell individual families how to live their life. But within the collected families of the local church, the church leaders have authority. So here's the third question. What's the mandate? What's the purpose for which God establishes authority in the church? So this is 2 Corinthians 10 verse 8. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and guys, they don't like Paul. He's not impressive enough. He started the church in Corinth. They owe their existence as Christians in the faith to Paul, but they don't like him. So he's defending himself throughout this epistle so that they'll get the benefit of God's word through him, through his authority. And this is what he says in part. He says, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, authority given to him by Christ, which the Lord gave, I have authority, we have authority, he says. And who gave it? The Lord gave it. What's the purpose, Paul, for building you up and not for destroying you? What's the purpose for God giving authority in the church? It's to build Christians up in the faith. It's entirely positive. 
what should the effect of leadership in the local church be? It should be that Christians are built up in the faith. Listen to this from Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. Guys, when you say this in a church today, people are like, no way. (laughs) I can tell you. (laughs) We live in a culture. Guys, we're like the culture around us. Most Christians are like, I'll do as I please. I'll sit here on Sunday morning. I'll go go do whatever I want. Hebrews 13, 17 says, authority exists in the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And we're like, why? Why should I? Why would I? For they are keeping watch over your souls. What are Christian leaders in the church supposed to do for you so that you would want to obey them or follow them? They're meant to keep watch over your souls. Now, again, think of shepherding as the most common image of leadership in the church. It's Jesus is the good shepherd in John 10. Ezekiel, I think it's 34, is the image of the good shepherd in the Old Testament. So this is the thing. So those leaders are meant to shepherd the church in a loving way that's to the benefit of all the sheep within it. So if I know somebody's out for my good, if I know somebody's there to help me, I'm much more likely to say, well, I'm glad to follow them. Or somebody wants to sit down and talk with me and I know they love me and they want my best. I'm glad to sit down and talk with them. That's the thought. They're keeping watch over your souls. By the way, for leaders, if you're in the government, you need to think about the mandate. If you're a government official, if you're a leader in the church, home groups, whatever, you got to think about the mandate. Am I fulfilling my mandate? Uh, Because it's easy not to, right? Sometimes just by negligence, not, not otherwise. Acts 20, 28, that same verse I quoted, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Why? What's the purpose? What's the mandate? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. To care for. Now, in the Greek, that's actually one word. It's to shepherd or feed the church. So here's that image again. The church is a flock, and the elders and the deacons, the leaders, are shepherds, and they're looking out for the church. Defensively, the doctrines that are being taught, the effects and influences that can be guarded that would come into the church that would not be a positive but a negative. So there's that thought that, again, they are looking over you for your benefit, for your good, so that you can thrive and grow to protect and preserve life within the church. That's the mandate of the leaders. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, the early authorities at least of the church. Why? What's the mandate? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Why did God give those authorities? So that Christians are built up. So that the church of Jesus Christ, which he bought with his own blood, is built up. Under Christ's mandate, church leaders should lead humbly, lovingly, thoughtfully, prayerfully, with a view to every member growing in Christ's likeness. That's the call for every Christian. Encouraged in their faith and serving others in the ways God has gifted and called them. That's the mandate. Jesus is the ultimate authority and church leaders are meant to exercise authority in Jesus' name as he would. Guys, here's the thing we're not getting into this morning. Whatever your position of authority is, Christian or not, saved or unsaved, you will one day face Jesus Christ face to face and you will give an account for the authority you were given. 
Hebrews 13, uh, 17 says that, that elders will answer to Christ for our role in his church. Every person with a position of authority will answer to Christ for the authority that was given them. So whatever that authority is, it behooves the authority to act within their mandate because they'll give an account for it. Everyone will. So when we think of leadership in the church, elders and deacons, church leaders are serving in Christ's name. How would Christ treat that Christian? What does Jesus want for his church purchased with his blood? This is a, this is a, it's a, it's a terrifying, frankly, responsibility. Church leaders have no authority to occupy a position for selfish gain, 1 Peter 5. Church authorities have no authority to be domineering over those in their charge, 1 Peter 5. Have no authority to make demands of others that aren't for their good. Have no authority to abuse those in their care in any way. Friends, we're living in a time and have been for the last maybe even 30 years in which clergy and most recently Southern Baptist pastors right here in the States are being called out for abuse of people under their charge. This is, the thought is anathema to Christ-like leadership. That people in Christ-like leadership, authorities that are going to answer to Christ for how they led in the local church, the thought of abuse in any way should never be a shadow of a thought. It's absolutely opposed to Christ. Jesus' bride, the church, and those in it are not under obligation to submit to abusive leadership. I don't think that's ever existed in Lion Lamb. I pray it never does. But it's just like government. Are they operating within their mandate? If they're not, I don't need to comply. If someone's living under church leadership and they're giving orders or commands or leadership against their mandate for the benefit of those they're called to serve, they needn't comply. That's the thought here. In the family, last and speaking here, I'm speaking broadly, big rocks. And guys, um, some of you might be cringing. I'm not qualifying. There's so much that we could qualify, qualify to death. And we just don't have time for that this morning. So these are big rocks principles, right? We're keeping it simple. One, two, three points. Do they, do they meet these criteria? We're trying to keep it simple. But to work through things, challenges in the future. In the family, we're talking about a nuclear family, Okay. So a husband, a wife with kids, okay? That's not all of us. If you live in a multi-generational household, if you're a single adult, this will look different. But we're, we're hitting the big rocks here, okay? In the family, a husband has authority by God's design over his wife, unapologetically. So go to the creation account. Adam's made first. Eve is the helper. Now, there's no thought, and we're not defending this today, there's no thought that a difference in role implies a difference in value, Eve is delighted to see Adam. Adam's delighted to see Eve. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's the one for me. The term used of Eve as helper is used of the Holy Spirit multiple times in the Old Testament. This isn't an issue of value, okay? It's roles and it's authority. And God has created authority within his cosmos. So 1 Corinthians 11.3 puts it this way. God is over Christ. Christ is over the husband, the husband is over the wife, okay? There's authority in the marriage. Forget the kids for now, just a husband and a wife. Is there authority? Absolutely. Why 
What's the purpose and what's the mandate? Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, I'm just calling from that. Husbands are called to love their wife, to give up their rights for her sake, for her benefit, to treat her with the care they would their own body. If you guys have seen athletes or bodybuilders, uh, they regulate what they eat. They're thoughtful, right, about their physique. They regulate what they eat. They exercise. They hit the gym. They do all these things to care for their body. We Husbands are meant to take that kind of proactive purpose and thought towards their wife, that you're living for her benefit. Christ laid down his life for the church. Husbands are called to lay down their lives to give up their rights for the benefit of their wife. Colossians 3.19, husbands love your wife. It's agape love. It's unconditional. Husbands, love your wife when she's unlovely. Husbands, love your wife when she's not submitting and helping you the way she should. Husbands, love your wives. In fact, it says, and don't be harsh. What's a temptation for someone who's in a position of authority? It's to demand. It's to be harsh. That's not the way Jesus leads the church, and it's not the way husbands are meant to lead their wives. 1 Peter 3, husbands, verse 7, husbands, live with your wife with understanding or knowledge. Uh, Peter says, because she's the weaker vessel, you got to be aware of her limitations. Uh, my wife is so capable in so many ways that I tend to take her for granted in ways I shouldn't. I'm supposed to be aware, okay, what's going on? What might affect her? What, what could pull her down? What might not be helpful for her? I'm supposed to be thinking about her with knowledge, not only generally she's a woman, but specifically what would help my wife, what would not help my wife with knowledge. And then he says, show her honor. Guys, if you're a husband, you're an authority. Do you show your wife honor? This is the one that got me, frankly. I've been in this passage. I know the passage, but in meditating on this, it was like, wow, I think I fail here. So what's the purpose? What's the mandate for husbands? It's to lovingly care for their wives for their good. A wife suffering abuse under her husband is under no compulsion to remain in that abusive setting in order to submit to her husband. Guys, there's articles on this. This is coming out because of abuse. When the government starts abusing people, you start reading about it, you hear stories. This is true in the church. That's why we've heard a plethora of this. But it's also been going on with wives. And please hear me. These are professing Christians in churches with wives being told, stay in an abusive relationship so you can submit to your husband. You know what? At a gut level, we know that's not right. The mandate is not being fulfilled. The mandate is to love your wife, to care for her. We don't tell somebody to stick it out in some abusive situation because now you're, you're submitting. It's illicit. It's not necessary. Now, again, on this, like everything, the devil's in the details. What does that look like? Now, how do I go about that? What would that look like? Say the same thing. A husband abused by his wife need not remain in that abusive setting in order to love his wife. And yes, there are husbands who are abused. The mandate, is she helping? Is she submitting? No. So I'm not, so please hear me. If you're married, stay married. <laughs> Give it everything you've got, okay? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But you see, there are times and situations in which a spouse would say, I, I know something doesn't feel right, but I can't articulate why. 
Well, it, it's because my spouse is not treating me the way God has called them to, and I know that, but I don't know what to do about it. That's where we need prayer, we need humility, we need counsel too, okay? But that's the thing. Okay, also in parenting, do parents have authority over their children, over minor children, not over adult children? Over minor children, they live in your household. Does a parent have authority? Yes, they do. Honor your father and your mother, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Honor your father and your mother. When your kids growing up in the home, that means obedience. Clearly, throughout the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs, you obey your parents. So is the parent in authority? Absolutely. Ephesians 6, this was the first memory verse we gave our girls. Children, obey your parents. And I'm not kidding. This was the first. Children, obey your parents. We understood. If your children don't obey you, they're not prepared with a mindset to obey God. If your children run your household, you're doing them an incredible disservice because you haven't primed them to respect, fear, and obey and love God. That's the thing. Colossians 3.20, the same thing. So parents have authority over their own children, not other people's children, right? Their sphere is their own children. What's the mandate or the purpose for that authority? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, from the law. These words I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall work at teaching my word to your children. That's the mandate. Uh, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when, you're, when you rise. This is reiterated, the concept, in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Christian parents are under mandate to give their children the truth of God's word. He's the living and true God, and this is his word, and this is what we live by. That's the mandate. That starts the mandate. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children, obey your parents. Why? What's the mandate? Verse 3, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. It's to your benefit. Parents are benefiting their children through the exercise of their authority. Colossians 3.21, fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged through harshness. Don't, don't require too much. They'll be discouraged. What's a father's principle in raising children? To encourage his children in all the right ways. So it's a benefit. The authority there, guys, is always meant by mandate to benefit those under its authority. God has ordained authorities in these key spheres of life to promote and protect life. When authorities act contrary to their mandates, they forfeit their own legitimacy, at least in those areas. The real challenge, again, I'm closing with this, is knowing when to say when. It's knowing how to respond. What the best way to respond is when you say, I may not obey you, or I choose not to obey you because I may, or I realize I shouldn't obey you for these reasons. Box one, two, or three. Like the founders of this country, unless life or limb or other significant harm is imminent, we want to humbly, prayerfully, advisedly, that means with the counsel of others, consider and address authorities operating outside their mandate before taking action to subvert or otherwise refuse their authority. Again, this is not an invitation to rebellion. This is an invitation to think hard-headedly through situations of authority we live under that we may face in the future. Okay, I went three minutes long, so apologies. Uh, rise with me, and we're going to read from Isaiah 11 together. This talks very briefly 
about what life under King Jesus will look like in this earth in the millennial reign. Ephesians, or excuse me, Isaiah 11, 3 through 5, and then verse 9. Let's read that together. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. They shall not hurt or destroy in 